Hi guys. Sometimes it's really hard to take the 70s seriously because if you think about, you know, what comes to mind when you think about the 70s, well, I'm going to assume it's bell-bottomed jeans and shag green carpet. And that comes from sort of shows that have been on television like that 70s show or the VH1s I Love the 70s that really focus on the psychedelic kind of very Euro-American version of the 70s. And, you know, the 70s did include more than a fair share of psychedelic colors and, and terrible hair, but you can also think about them as, as a, a means of breaking free from sort of very cautious um, 1950s and, and kind of nuclear war-obsessed 1960s, right? And so in this context, the 70s are not just uh, sort of bad fashion, um, but in this case, fashion is a mean, uh, means of kind of breaking free. So think about the 70s fashion choices as a version of the 1920s flapper dress, right? After the kind of the constraints of World War I and the shock of World War I, the 70s, you know, it's not equivalent in terms of what they're responding to, right? This is not a war that the 70s are breaking free of, but it is a breath of, of fresh air, an experimental fresh air after two decades that really sort of overwhelmingly impacted by the Cold War and these two camps, the USA and USSR, kind of establishing a new world order that uh, can seem kind of constraining to many. And so in the 70s, many of the, the cultural choices are reflections about this desire to break free of the constraints of this new world order. And, you know, think about contemporary trends like eco-chic, craft crafting and craft working, vintage shopping and sort of the revivalism of a vintage vintage kind of decorating ideal, gender bending androgyny, do you it yourself thrift shopping, all this, this comes from the 70s, right? Which was a, it was a reaction against sort of factory manufacturing, mechanization, modernization, a, a, a discourse in which progress primes above everything, and in a discourse in which you had to choose one side or another. The 70s, in a sense, this fashion mishmash or mishap is a refusal to comply with having to choose between one side or another. This was a decade of experimentation. And we can sort of look down on the shag rug look, but... Um, but there's a lot about the 70s that prevails, as I said. So some of these, you know, sort of the, the, the environmentalist movement, it has a strong sort of what really became powerful in the 70s. But, you know, some of you might like wearing these little wrap dresses. They're very functional, very easy. That was the first one was sold in 1974 by, by Diane Furstenberg. And um, those of you who like tie-dye and Birkenstocks, that look became acceptable. <laughs> And widespread in the 1970s. Disco balls, I love them. It's the 1970s. And androgyny in a post-gender world, right? David Bowie kind of shocked the bourgeoisie with Ziggy Stardust. But that also made it really cool amongst a certain group of the population in the 70s to sort of mess with gender expectations. And, and that, you know, sort of, let's just say that that doesn't just influence the, the, the current fashion and position about gender and, and, and sexual orientation. But it really sort of, you know, if you look at the hairbands of the 80s and 90s, you can see an, an influence on that. So the 70s are actually a really important kind of cultural moment because it's not just about 
bell-bottom pants. It's about pushing boundaries, right? Charlie's Angels, ABBA, Elton John, these are all sort of icons of the 70s, you know, not high art icons, but certainly cultural icons. And they all played with gender roles and they combined this questioning around gender roles with music and fashion. And all these three collide in the 70s and that becomes a feature of of fashion and music today. Um, The decade of the 70s is also the decade when the, the entire world, not just the West, is influenced by this, right? So Africans and Asians are all watching European and American television. And, you know, to a certain degree, Americans are watching programs and influences that are coming from the rest of the world. And this is really, in a way, why you can start having celebrities that are celebrities across the world. And one of those first celebrities was Muhammad Ali, the boxer. He, when he visited Africa in the, in the late 60s and early 70s, he was, a, he was the biggest celebrity ever. Right? And that has a lot to do, not just with who Muhammad Ali was in the United States, but the fact that that message gets beamed across the world by television. Now, we do have to focus on not so groovy parts of the 1970s because the 1970s were also a time of great conflict, right? The Vietnam War is raging on. It continues until 1975. And when the Vietnam War is over, the United States leaves that part of the world. It's not over for that part of the world. I mean, in a sense, the horrors continue. Just look up what went on in Cambodia in the, in the mid-70s under Pol Pot. Uh, it, it, it's 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 not good. The Middle East is still exploding in one confrontation or another around the existence of the state of Israel, and and we need to talk about in the seventies about the Yom Kippur War, which happened on October 6, nineteen seventy three. Yom Kippur is a high holy day in the Jewish religion. This is a, a, a day of um, atonement, and during which most adults in Israel would have been fasting and 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 really sort of thinking about their past year this this is not a this is a quiet moment of contemplation and this is the day that the egyptian and syrian armies chose to attack the country knowing full well that the country was not be expecting it and would not be prepared to fight it was a religious holiday on this day the egyptians managed to push really deep into the sinai and the syrians took the golan heights and so these were sort of key buffer zones that the Israelis had, in fact, taken in, uh, in the 60s. The Israeli army managed to sort of recover very, very quickly. And they pushed both attacks back, right? So they reclaimed the Golan Heights and they took the Sinai back. And in fact, the retaliation was so swift, so strong, and looked like it was going to completely destroy Egyptian forces that the Soviet Union had to threaten to get involved, because that eventually got the Americans really sort of worried and advocated on the, you know, in order not to get to a nuclear war, they, um, they managed to sort of push everybody back and calm the Israelis down. Right? So the moment the Soviets get involved, the Americans have to get involved. And since neither of them wanted to get involved because this is the Cold War, that ended the Yom Kippur War. Now, the Arab world felt that the reason why they had lost in this war was because the West, and by that they meant Europe and the United States, had been unbelievably supportive of Israel, right? They, in a sense, had demonized the Arab world, had sort of lost perspective on what Israel had caused. And so the Arab world decided that it would put pressure on the oil-reliant West. 
The oil-wealthy Arab nations had formed the Organization of Oil Exporting Countries in 1960, and it was um, Arab nations that produced oil and Venezuela. And in 1973, they realized that OPEC, which is what the acronym for Organization of Oil Exporting Countries um, was, could use oil as a political weapon. And so in 1973, they raised oil prices and imposed an oil embargo on the West on all the countries that had supported Israel during the war. And the result, as you can imagine, was chaos. There were huge gas lines, uh, huge lines of gas stations, essentially that the shortages were so bad that there was rationing of gas. You couldn't, you just couldn't fill your tank up more than a few times a week or once a week. Um, and then there were sort of real constraints on supplies of good that had to be transported in. And, and you know, since there was no gas to to put in trucks or ships that were oil-fueled, um, there was enormous disruptions in the flow of good. Now, what was the consequence? What, what comes after that chaos? Well, on the one hand, people rode their bike, right? So people sort of found alternatives for their transportation, but you can't really kind of, you can't bike in um, goods to supermarkets. And what that actually generated was an enormous growth of the industry for fuel alternative. That now became a serious business. And so that led both to sort of offshore drilling in countries that had oil reserves, like the Netherlands and Norway and the U.S., but also an exploration of non-fossil fuels, right? So if we think about the the non-fossil fuel industry today, wind turbines, um, hydroelectric, that all has a, a sort of a very strong origin in the 1970s, realization, right, of how dependent the West was on oil that came from a different part of the world in which politics and economics could sort of collide. Now, the other thing that this the, the sort of the, 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 this confrontation, the war led to was it forced a peace negotiation between two major enemies in the Middle East. Egypt and Israel, actually, after the Yom Kippur War, realized that they needed to talk to each other. And in fact, this came from, from Egypt. The negotiations between the president, Anwar Sadat, and, and Menachem Begin, the prime minister of Israel, um, were, were key in, uh, in really changing the balance of, of power and the balance of, of confrontations in the Middle East. They, they both got the Nobel Prize for sitting down um, and talking to each other. And this was born in pragmatism, right? They, the, why did they start talking to each other? Well, Egypt was in trouble. The Yom Kippur War had been a resounding defeat, and Egypt really needed support to recover from it, right? It needed to, it needed access to its oil fields, which were still under uh, Israeli control, um, and it, it couldn't rebuild without aid. And one could argue that Egypt should have asked help from the oil-rich neighboring countries in the Middle East, right? But that's not how the Middle East works. And you have to think about religion in this equation. Egypt was and is a Muslim country, but it was not exclusively Muslim and it was not a religious autocracy, right? The Egyptian government was not a religious government and many Egyptians are not Muslim. And those that are not are not all fundamentalists. The wealthiest country in the Middle East is Saudi Arabia and it is an autocracy. It doesn't have a legislature, it doesn't have political parties, it doesn't have elections. The laws are written and they're adjudicated by the executive power in Saudi Arabia, and Sharia law and the Quran are the law of the land. And so one could argue that Egypt had in fact more in common with the United States and Israel, when you think about its political system, than it did with Saudi Arabia. And so 
Egypt appealed for help to rebuild in this context from the United States because it knew that it wasn't going to be able to negotiate on, on, on a basis that could be tenable with Saudi Arabia. And the United States was only going to help them if they agreed to end the conflict with Israel. So this is really sort of an, an important thing to understand about the Middle East then, but it also helps explain the, in some respects the Middle East today. And so the Camp David talks in 1977 were historic because they got Egypt to recognize the state of Israel, something that every other Arab nation had refused to do. And at, at, at the, you know, after these Camp David talks, Egypt and Israel agreed to a permanent peace. They would never go to war with each other again. And in, in, in exchange for that, Israel returned the Sinai to Egypt, so Egypt had access to oil fields, and scaled back its presence in the Golan Heights. And they also agreed that they would negotiate the terms for an autonomous, autonomous Palestinian state in Gaza and the West Bank, which ultimately led to the PLO, which is the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which was still considered by Israel to be a terrorist organization, an observer status in the United Nations. Right? So this, this is historic by any means. Right? This, this was a case in which mortal enemies negotiated an agreement by which they could both exist. We have a lot to learn from the diplomacy that led to that agreement. Was this the end to the conflict in the Middle East? Absolutely not. It's the end of the conflict between Egypt and Israel. But Anwar Sadat, the president of Egypt, was assassinated in 1981 by an Islamist faction of his own bodyguards who were so disgusted that he had betrayed, and I'm using air quotes here, the Arab cause. So the Middle East, if you're reading newspapers now, is still a complicated situation. But there is an example in the 1970s of a means, a diplomatic means, by which you don't have to love your neighbor. You don't even have to like anybody you live with, but you can find a way to live together. So while we're on that front, on this front of, of, of war and negotiations, terrorism was never higher in the world than it was in the 1970s. And terrorist attacks actually up until 1994 were quite common in Europe. I mean, there was Northern Ireland's British, uh, the, the Republican Army, the IRA, the uh, Basque separatist group, um, ETA. There were Italian terrorists, the Anidi Piombo, years of lead. There was the Red Army faction in Germany. These are all extremist political groups that organized bombings in, 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 the, in each of these countries and across Europe. And it was a phenomenon. I mean, the peak was reached in 1979 when there were more than a thousand attacks in Europe. And throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s, there was an average of about 10 terrorist attacks per week. Now, this doesn't mean that they were sort of with mass casualties. This means these are small targeted attacks that were just meant to terrorize and, and, and essentially push towards negotiations. Now, the terrorism did not just happen in Europe. In the late 1969, terrorists had kidnapped an American ambassador to Brazil. There's a great film about this called Four Days in September, and, and I really highly recommend it. Because it's not just a 1960s film. This is actually sort of about a situation in Latin America in the 1970s. The, um, the reason why they had kidnapped the ambassador was because friends of theirs, their comrades, had been imprisoned by the right-wing military Brazilian regime that ruled into the 70s, right? And so they, the, they, they 
they kidnapped the American ambassador because they were because they saw the United States as, in a sense, allowing this right wing military regime from operating in Brazil. Because remember, what the United States was most concerned at the time was a controlling communist activity in the world. And this right wing military regime in Brazil had the support of the United States because it was ostensibly protecting Brazil from communist activity. So there you go. And European terrorism was not just perpetrated by Europeans. Palestinian terrorists took 11 Israeli athletes and coaches hostage at the Munich Olympics in 1972. And the entire world watched as the event unfolded on their TVs. This hostage-taking ended with the massacre of all hostages and the deaths of most of the terrorists. It was, it was, it was a really frightening thing to observe on television now. I was too young to remember that, but I remember hearing about it, right? I remember people talking about it years afterwards. And then there was airborne terrorism. The first airline hijacking attached to political demands, that actually happened in 1968. But it started a trend. And in 1970, Palestinian terrorists really upped the ante with mass hijacking of five commercial airlines at the same time. Three of the planes carrying hundreds of hostages, made it to a landing strip in Jordan, which created an international crisis because, you know, that's, you know, that's a lot of planes and that's a lot of politics to sort of put in a small country in the Middle East. And it ended in civil war. That same year, terrorists also sabotaged a Swiss air flight that crash landed and killed all 47 aboard. And in the mid-1970s, airline hijackings and airline bombings worldwide were occurring at a rate of one a month. Can you imagine? One a month? I can't believe anybody would get on a plane in the 1970s. It's, um, you know, why was terrorism such, you know, you know, on such a scale in the 1970s? Well, then that's a really good question. Why was it going on? Like, who, you know, I, I still, you know, I have a hard time putting myself in the mind of a terrorist, except to, when you think about how extreme and perhaps how powerless some people felt. And it's not easy to explain why terrorism was, was such a feature of the 1970s as opposed to, you know, another part of time of the year or time of the, the, the decades and, the, and, and the, the century. But if you think about this experimentation I was talking about at the beginning of the lecture, right, this discomfort with the new world order, that's part of the answer, right? The, 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 the dissatisfaction with a world order that forced people to choose one side or the other without an alternative, that's not a good place to put people in. And if you add to that, right, that on the one hand, there are two world powers and, and nothing in between, there's also a, a growing sense that many of the power structures that had meant, had sort of seemed to have been destroyed by World War II were still in place, right? The Northern Irish nationalism and Basque terror, they were directed at governments they considered to be imperialistic, right? They were not representative. Spain did not represent the Basque na nation, and Great Britain was not representative of Northern Ireland. And so there was sort of a desire to break free of, of an imperial structure that still existed, right? And Arab ter terrorism, that was a violent response to the creation of a state, the state of Israel, by foreign powers in their territory, right? And so in the sense, there was enormous resentment both against Israel, but against the British, who had essentially allowed this to happen, the United Nations, who had vindicated it legally, the United States that continued to protect it. 
Right now, this kind of dissatisfaction that makes for some pretty good film, by the way. The Day of the Jackal is a great film, and you should all watch it immediately. Bloody Sunday, another phenomenal um, film that are based on real events in the 1970s, and it's they're also a, sort of a, a good example of how sort of how aware the world was, both in terms of reading the newspapers, but in in, in a kind of popular cultural way, that. The world is avoiding a global nuclear war. We're, we're aware that that's the, the end goal, but all is far from well, right? Instability is, in fact, global. And it's not a world war. It's many little wars, many little but very significant conflicts in which few but important lives are being lost. And so this is, this is also a really important part of the 70s, and it's not quite as you know, easy to convey as shag green carpet and bell bottoms. Let's continue to one more really key sort of transformation in the 1970s. And that's the Stonewall riots. And they happened in New York, but they essentially catapulted the gave movement to the front page of any newspaper across the world. Stonewall riots were three days of riots in a small bar on Christopher Street in New York. It was really common in the 60s to harass people considered to be, and again, air quotes, abnormal. It was routine by the police to sort of raid bars that were known to serve gay patrons. That day in July in late 1969, the patrons of the Stonewall Inn had finally had it with the harassment police, and they resisted. And that resistance turned violent, and that riot lasted three days. And that three-day riot against police harassment of gay patrons of a bar in New York was the beginning of a groundswell of support for, and also against, but essentially of, of the discussion over the right to equal treatment under the law, no matter what the sexual orientation was. Race and gender had already been engaged with right, and sexuality was the next frontier. And in many respects, it still is. Christopher Street Liberation Day was June 28, 1970, and that marked the first anniversary of the Stonewall riot, and essentially it was also the first gay pride march didn't call itself that but that's what it was and it there were simultaneous marches in los angeles and chicago that same day and essentially you know if you go back in time those were the first gay pride marches in u.s history they, again they didn't call themselves that they were gay liberation marches the next year 1971 there were gay pride marches in boston dallas Milwaukee, but also London, Paris, and West Berlin, and Stockholm. And the concept went global. Why? Because this was a global issue. Now, the Stonewall riots may be an American event, but the effect was global. This was not just a U.S. movement. It was not just a European movement. And with varying degrees of social acceptance, Stonewall and the Pride marches opened the door to mainstream discussions of, of gay issues and eventually all LGBTQ issues. Now, today, gay pride demonstrations are, are fairly common, and in many parts of the world, they're sort of, they're, they're kind of big family affair. If you've ever been in Los Angeles on the day of gay pride, it's, it's, a, it's a very happy, family-friendly celebration. But there's still 10 countries today where homosexual acts are punished by death. And there are other countries where, while it's not a capital crime, it's significantly frowned upon if you... In Russia, for example, Russia doesn't make homosexuality a crime, but it criminalizes acts that constitute propaganda about homosexuality. And so that gives um, police an extremely wide berth. So 
Bell bottoms, shag green carpet. Let's hope they are never in style again. But let's hear it for a decade during which, for better or for worse, freedom of expression took a really public and sometimes really psychedelic and bell bottom turn. Let's hear it for the 70s because the 70s, as bad as the fashion was, were pretty, pretty awesome. 